I really want you to focus just for a moment on some of the most memorable moments in your life. They can be good, they can be bad, they can be um, times of great joy or times of great sorrow, whatever the case. Moments that you will not forget. Moments that stand out so clearly in your mind um, that, are, that are evocative of, of something significant happened. Maybe they're, they're fun memories from your childhood. I was thinking this week about some memories from my childhood and times when, when uh, my brother and I would go out with my dad and we'd play uh, golf at the driving range in Pennsylvania or times we'd drive from, from Pennsylvania to Florida to see my grandparents uh, down in, in Delray Beach and uh, the heat of the days of, of when we would lay out and, and get skin cancer from laying out in the sun. For some reason, we thought that was a good idea to oil up and then lay out in 95 degree weather. But uh, vivid, vivid memories of your childhood and maybe there are moments with, with people that you love and, and times that were significant that way or, or conversations you've had that were, that were life-changing, moments uh, that you remember well and, and things that were said that, that still stand out after the years. You can probably even formulate pictures in your mind and video of, of that moment. Somebody asked me once, what do you think is, would be the greatest superpower? And I said, going back in time and actually living through moments again. Wouldn't that be cool? And, and remembering that, I don't know if that would make it the memory worse or better. I, I kind of miss the days where everything wasn't captured on a cell phone, right? You know, every moment now is captured on a cell phone. Wait a second, got to take pictures of my food, and I've got to take pictures, selfie and selfie sticks, and I don't know. Everything is, is captured on, on, on a camera now. Isn't it crazy? Don't you, don't you remember the days? How many are old enough to remember the days where you had the little roll of film that went in the Instamatic, right? And you didn't know what the picture looked like until you took it to the, to the store and waited for four days to get it back. And then you're like, these pictures stink. Who took these? Kids, that's actually what our life was like. It was a hard time. We suffered. Everything now is captured on on a camera, so you, you never have a moment that's not recorded. But before all that took place, and it's only been, what, like 10, 15 years? We had to rely on our memories. Imagine such a thing. And there are vivid memories you may have. Maybe you've got a couple pictures in a scrapbook, or, or maybe you've got the old, you know, video cameras that sat on your shoulder. You remember those days? Like, you know, the dads are like, let me get this. And you, they're up here with the big video camera. And now it's just like, oh, yeah, I got it. Whatever. You parents are so archaic. Memories are strong. Things that we remember from our past. And as I asked you to remember those very significant memories, you probably tended toward the positive, right? Things that were happy, wedding days, birth of a child, great family vacations, awesome times you had with friends, whatever the case may be, those are the experiences you probably went to. Or maybe you thought if spiritually the day you got saved. I'll never forget the day I got saved in Charlotte, North Carolina. I can remember, I can picture it right now, walking down the aisle toward my father who had just preached from the book of Revelation. Never forget it. Memories we tend to go that are positive and happy. We tend to repress the ones that are negative. The death of a loved one, a divorce, when a child left home, or 
or losing a job or something that was just as significant and just as memorable, but, but not something that we really feel like going back to because maybe it brings us a lot of sadness and a lot of discouragement. It's really amazing that events that happened years ago, maybe decades ago, are so strong in our memory. And they elicit maybe still today such, such strong emotions. They're influential maybe in how we think or act and who we became as a person and, and what we are. And that tells us that memories have a lot of power over our minds. Things that we've experienced, memories we have, have a lot of power and influence in who we are and what we've become. So what we do with those memories, how we process them, how we deal with them, becomes very, very important. Do we allow painful memories of our past to, to debilitate our progress or, or maybe damage our view of the future? Maybe we become jaded about the future because of something that happened. Or, or maybe we're still so hurt by something that somebody did to us and somebody that broke our heart that it's created a lack of trust in other people. Maybe we've isolated ourselves because we're just so damaged by what somebody did that, that we just don't want to be around people. Do we allow trials and difficulties to, to produce frustration with the Lord? Maybe, maybe we have trouble relying on the Lord like we should because we feel like He's let us down or that He took us through something that, that we shouldn't have had to go through and, and we don't want to quite yield to Him the way that we should or obey Him the way that we should because, because we feel like He was unfair. Or do we concentrate on God's grace like we sang this morning and God's sufficiency and God's provision? Do we, do we praise Him for those trials because we know that they were for the refining of our faith, that they made us more mature, that they taught us what it was to trust? Do we look back at how God's blessed us, grateful for the joy that he's brought us through and also grateful for the trials that he's allowed because of how they shaped us spiritually and how they maybe drew us closer to another person? It's all in how we deal with it. And just as we choose what we want to remember, we also choose how we deal with what we remember. How we deal with with those experiences in our life that have shaped us. Now, some of that's formed by our personality. Some of that's formed by our genetics. I tend to be a bit of a behaviorist, so I think it's learned. If you are around negative people all your life, you're probably going to have a propensity to be more negative in your thinking because people rub off on you. If you were always around people that were positive and full of faith, you're probably inclined to be a person who's very positive and full of faith. That's just what happens. But that's not the only issue. How we view things, how we relate to experiences, how we deal with them, and how they shape us into, in terms of who we become is going to always be related to our level of spiritual maturity. The more we trust the Lord, the more we know the Lord, the more we are confident in the Lord at all times, yield to Him, surrender to His Spirit, all the things we've talked about throughout the years. The, the more that is true, the more we're going to look back, even at painful memories and painful experiences, and the more we're going to say, yeah, but God was faithful. God was gracious, and when I called on His name, He answered me. 
And I saw his sufficiency, even though I was in moments of crisis where I didn't know what the next hour was going to hold. Maybe you're at the point of, of killing yourself. Maybe you're at the point of, of breaking a relationship and you knew you shouldn't. Maybe you're at the point of sin where you're right at the precipice and you said, I want to walk over this, this precipice and into that trap and I know what I'm getting into, but I'm going to do it anyway because that's where I am. And God rescued you from that. How we deal with that depends on our level of spiritual maturity. And what we fill our minds with and what we dwell on is absolutely significant. That's why God says in Philippians 4, whatsoever is true and whatsoever is pure and honorable and right and lovely, think on that. That's not just about what we take in in terms of media and conversations. That's also about what we hold on to in our minds. Some people hold on to despair. It's almost like, a, like Linus's blanket. It's, it's, it's the, the, the discouragement is almost comforting to them because it's all they know. Or maybe they don't want to release their faith to the Lord and they want to think that, that by holding on to that despair that they're in control. Even though they're miserable, they still are holding on to it. So the Bible says, think on what is pure and what is holy. And that's an intentional decision. That's a, that's a choice we make. Now, the results of our memories and the results of our choices is shown very clearly in the Old Testament. And if you have your Bible this morning, turn to Numbers chapter 11. Because when we look at Israel throughout the Old Testament, we see that focusing on the negative and gravitating towards sin was, was almost ingrained in their emotional DNA. Israel constantly, constantly, constantly looked at the negative. They constantly chose wrong. They constantly remembered what, was, uh, what they viewed as unfair about the Lord rather than looking at all the things that God had done and knowing that any feelings that God was unfair were incorrect. And because they are constantly dwelling on the negative, they are constantly in spiritual rebellion toward the Lord. God has a plan for them. He lays it out abundantly clearly. He's gracious to them. He's always with them. And yet they continue to stay in rebellion. And there's probably no passage in the whole Bible that, that personifies that better than Numbers chapter 11. Now, Real brief history of the nation at this point. God makes an unconditional covenant with Abraham in Genesis 12. He says, I'm going to make a nation out of you. I'm going to bless your nation. I'm going to be their God. And I'm going to give you uh, international borders. There's going to be a land that you're going to be in. That, that I'm going to settle you. And you're going to be a nation. And I'm going to be your God. That covenant is fulfilled through Isaac and Jacob. Who's later renamed Israel. And then the Lord continues to lead Abraham. He settles him in the land that he's promised him, that which is now Israel and, and far beyond the borders of what is Israel now. And then Jacob has 12 sons. These become the 12 tribes of Israel. One of them is named Joseph. Joseph becomes very influential in the plan of God. And he eventually, we know the story throughout Genesis 30 to 45, Joseph becomes a ruler in Egypt after his brother sell him into slavery. 
Well, eventually the family comes down to Egypt and they settle there and they continue to, to grow and populate and their generations uh, continue to, to, to become more significant. And eventually Pharaoh, who's the leader of Egypt, looks around and he says, we have too many Jewish people here. And they're stronger than us. They're bigger than us. So because we can't kick them all out at this point, let's turn them into slaves. So Israel, who had settled in Egypt and been influential and helped the country, now goes into slavery. And for 400 years, they're in slavery in Egypt until finally they decide they're going to cry out to the Lord. And God immediately sends Moses to deliver them. Now, we know the account of that well. Start of the book of Exodus. Moses comes and he says, let my people go. Pharaoh resists that, so God sends 12 plagues. On the 12th plague, where the Passover was instituted, Pharaoh finally says, enough already, get out of my nation. Israel goes toward the promised land, they get to the Red Sea, what happens? Tell me, the Red Sea divides, right? Israel walks through on dry land. When Egypt tries to follow them, they all drown. Israel's on the other side. Now they're through, and they're on their way to the promised land. Everything's good. God's leading them by day and by night with a cloud and a pillar of fire. And they're going to go get the law, and they're going to go to the promised land, and God's going to fulfill everything he told Abraham. But they get to Sinai, and when God gives them the law... Israel decides rather than waiting for Moses to come back and rather than listening to God speak from the top of the mountain that, that they want another God, that, that this God hasn't been sufficient. So they take off the rings and the jewelry and they melt them down and they build a golden calf and they say, that's what led us out of Egypt. And God punishes them. And God tells them that they have to wander for 40 years in the wilderness. But he's gracious to them. And he stays with them and he fills the tabernacle that he has them built with his presence. And he continues to lead them and guide them and show them mercy and keep them moving to the promised land. Now I tell you all that introduction because that's where we are in Numbers chapter 11. Israel now is headed toward the promised land. They've been in the wilderness. They've been at Sinai. This is in chapter 10. And now they, they move forward, but they're still unsure somehow after all these years, they're still unsure whether they want to follow God. They're still unsure whether they want to yield to his plan and their minds are out of focus and their hearts are still in rebellion. So now in chapter 11, look at it. They just left Sinai, which is the ultimate place of contrast. God gives the law and they ignore it. God tells them he'll lead them, and they rebel, and they build the golden calf. But, but now God says it's time to move forward. And their memories at this point of what God has done, their memories of God's deliverance, their memories of God's discipline, they've disappeared. And as soon as they start walking, the complaints begin. Look at chapter 11 and verse 1. Now the people became like those who complain of adversity in the hearing of the Lord. And when the Lord heard it, his anger was kindled. And the fire of the Lord burned among them and consumed some of the outskirts of the camp. The people therefore cried out to Moses. And Moses prayed to the Lord and the fire died out. So the name of that place was Taborah because the fire of the Lord burned among them. The rabble who were among them had greedy desires, and also the sons of Israel wept again and said, Who will give us meat to eat? We remember the fish that we used to eat free in Egypt, the cucumbers and the melons and the leeks and the onions and the garlic. But now our appetite's gone. There's nothing at all to look at except this manna. 
I added the emphasis there, by the way. Now, the manna was like coriander seed and its appearance like that of bdellium. The people would go about and gather it and grind it between two millstones or beat it in the mortar and boil it in the pot and make cakes with it. And its taste was like the taste of cakes baked with oil. When the dew fell on the camp at night, the manna would fall with it. Now, this text always makes me laugh. And it really would actually be pretty funny if it weren't so sad. Because as soon as the people leave Sinai, verse 1, look at it, says they became like those who complain of adversity in the hearing of the Lord. So apparently there's a type of person that intentionally complains thinking that it'll make the, feel, the Lord feel bad because they're unhappy. You ever done that? Don't say yes, because you probably have. I know I have. Well, if I complain loudly enough, then the Lord will know that I'm unhappy and he'll do something because he doesn't want me to be unhappy, which is a bit of a myth. So the people, they, they start to complain and their, their thought process is, well, every time we complain, God will do something. So, so they, don't, they don't make the connection that that makes God angry. And we see in the text that God got so angry at this point that their lack of gratitude and their lack of perspective, that he sends fire to burn the outskirts of the camp and people are killed by it. Now that alone should give us some indication of how seriously the Lord deals with selfishness. How seriously he treats bitterness and resentment toward him when he's always gracious to us and yet we get so worked up and so so self-centered in our thinking that we start to complain, well, God, you haven't been fair and God, you haven't been faithful and God, you haven't done this and God, you haven't done that and God, you haven't done that and we used to have onions to eat and now we just have bread. It's not that the Lord's unreasonable or harsh here. It's that the Lord knows that when we care more about ourselves than we care about him, that our mind will be confused and our heart will be corrupted. So he wants to get the people back to perspective. And I want to give you three spiritual principles this morning that, that will come out of this text that I think will, will strengthen our thoughts and help us to focus on the right things. And the first one comes out of this first section in Numbers chapter 11. The first principle is selfishness always distorts truth. Selfishness always distorts truth. Look back at verse 5. The people say, we have all these great memories of the breakfast buffets that we used to have when we were in slavery in Egypt. Every morning we'd get up and we'd go down and there would be a huge spread and it was all free. It was fantastic. We'd go down and there would be onions and there would be leeks and there would be all kinds of great food, cucumbers and melons. It was just like a big party. We were in slavery, but just forget that for a moment because we got free food. Well, I don't know what they think's going on here, but verse 9 tells me that every morning they had free food. They just didn't like the selection. They had a miracle every single day. Because when the dew fell at night, God would send bread down from heaven. It was called manna. It looked like the, the mineral bedelium, which is kind of a, you can look it up on the internet, it's kind of a, a golden brown uh, uh, mineral. 
So this bread, it wasn't just like little white wafers. It was, it was golden brown bread that fell every morning that tasted like bread dipped in oil. You ever been to, to Carrabba's or to, to Macaroni Grill or, or to, uh, uh, what's the other place, uh, the nice one? Uh, help me, Jacob. What's the, what's the other one? Maggiano. You ever been to Maggiano? How many have been to Maggiano's? Oh, I like Maggiano's. That's a good place. I am a sucker for bread, as you can tell by my stomach. I love bread, like bread, any kind of bread, except for rosemary bread. I don't really like that. But any kind of bread, like I'll eat bread, rye bread, marble rye, uh, wheat toast, English muffin, bacon, it doesn't matter. I love bread. And when they give you that little oil, right? How many know what I'm talking about here? Give me an amen. They give you the oil with the herbs in it, and you put a little pepper in there, and then you dip the warm bread. Oh, man, it tastes good, doesn't it? I'd eat that right now. Well, manna wasn't just dry wafers that, you know, how that kind of is, like a saltine on when you're hot. The last thing you want to eat saltines, right? You're like... So this bread was golden brown, and every morning they woke up, and it was like bread dipped in oil. Yum. And and that's not just something that they found in the wilderness. This was a miraculous event that God produced every single morning without fail. But here was the problem with Israel. their, Their appetite was not for God's constant and faithful blessing. They wanted something exotic and different. They wanted variety. Forget faithfulness, God. We don't want faithfulness. Forget consistency. Forget the fact that every single morning we wake up and there's a miracle at our feet. Forget that. We don't want that. We want to go back to Egypt and eat cucumbers. You imagine such a thing? Isn't it ironic that when God is faithful to us that we get a little bored and restless that he's not doing something exciting and then when he brings something exciting to our life a challenge a trial something that will stretch out our faith we get a little uptight lord why are you putting me through this we're never satisfied are we just like israel Every morning they receive bread from heaven. Every morning we receive fresh mercy from heaven. That's not wishful thinking. That's Lamentations 3.23, that God gave you fresh mercy this morning, that he prepared for you overnight. It's an unbreakable promise. Every morning, like the manna that was laying on the ground that was good to eat, that, that man, my mouth's now watering for bread dipped in oil, but, but every morning God would provide that. Every morning, when you woke up this morning, God said, I've already got your day laid out. I've already got mercy that's ready for you. I'm going to minister you. I'm going to help you. I'm going to provide for you. I'm going to show grace to you. I'm going to show love to you that you cannot possibly even imagine. And by the way, I've secured you for all eternity. And you're my child. You're not my slave. I'm not sending you to hell. You're my child. And yet we take that for granted. So when we rise in the morning, do we praise him? Lord, thank you for another day where I'm breathing. Thank you so much. When we lay down at night, Lord, thank you for how you've provided for me today and been so gracious to me that I got through the day. We had perspective a couple weeks ago. I don't know if I told you the story 
we were driving, I was driving Julie to the airport. She was going down to see her mom, and I'm heading up KR. Have I told you this story? I'm getting old now. I don't remember what I do. I'm driving down KR about 55 miles an hour. We're a little late to the airport, and, and I'm a little stressed, and, but, but we're good. We're going to make it. And, and there's a car that pulls up to the side street, and I think, all right, well, he's going to stop. Well, he doesn't stop. He just keeps rolling out into the, into the middle of care. You guys know care. It's two lanes, right? There's a gully on each side. I'm going 55, and he's about as far away from me as the back wall. And there's no way I'm going to break in time. And he's pulled out far enough that I can't bail right. And if I bail left, I'm probably in the ditch. And in a split second, the Lord says, go left. So I went left. I didn't even slow down. I just, I honked. He didn't move. He just kept rolling out. I pulled around him, swerved around him, and kept going. It is the grace of God that we didn't kill him. I, as I'm turning left, I'm saying to myself, I'm just waiting for that sickening sound. You know when you have an accident? how heavy it is, and that sound of metal against metal. And I don't know if I'm going to hit his front and spin him. I don't know if we're going to fly through the air into the ditch. I don't know what's going to happen, but in a split second, we don't know one day to the next what's going to happen. Two minutes before, I had no idea that the potential of my life changing forever was about to happen. If I broadsided him, he dies. I go to jail for manslaughter. Can you imagine? When we get to the end of the day, we should say, Lord, thank you for getting me through today. Because I don't know half of what I faced. And you were gracious. Is our tendency more, listen now, toward the positive and toward praise? Or is our tendency more toward the negative and complaining? That's a heart issue. It's a gratitude issue. It's a faith issue. If you look back at verse 4, it says the rabble who were among them had greedy desires. Do you know the devil always pushes greedy desires? He wants us to be selfish, and that's very subtle. And we need a daily dose of spiritual perspective because our memory can be very selective. You see it in relationships. You ever fight with your spouse where you didn't want to give in, and you talk about their faults, but you don't talk about your own? Anytime you don't take responsibility, but you accuse somebody else or, or blame somebody else, we do it to our spouses, kids do it to us, we even do it to the Lord. And over and over again, the Lord says, I'm not messing around with that. It's not forgetfulness, and it's not misguided thinking. Look at what he calls it. He says it's rebellion. And 1 Samuel 15 says that rebellion is equal to witchcraft. Now, now, people tend to think witchcraft is cute and harmless because they've read Harry Potter and, and they think it's just kind of this cute idea. But the meaning of the word witchcraft, listen now, is to consult the devil and worship idols. So when we're in rebellion to the Lord, guess what we're doing? This is not Paul Rhodes' word. This is the Bible's word. When we're in rebellion to God, we're essentially consulting and agreeing with the devil and worshiping an idol, and the idol's us. 
So God says, you better be very careful about your attitude. And you better be careful about what you focus your mind on. You better be careful about your memories. Because unlike Lot's, you don't want to be like, like Lot's wife, who's looking back with regret. Oh, I wish I could be there. That's such a happy memory. Sodom and Gomorrah was the nastiest place on earth. People were in all kinds of perversity. God says, I've got to destroy this place. There aren't even 50 righteous people there. The, devil, the, the angels have to pull Lot and his wife and their kids out of the city because they're still clinging to the house. And, and even after God says, don't look back because I'm going to destroy this place, Lot's wife just, oh, I wish I was still there. Memories are powerful. And God says, you have the wrong perspective. Israel, look at the text. You have the wrong perspective about Egypt. You're longing for it, but it was not a place of joy and satisfaction. It was a place of pain. You know, we all have Egypts in our life, places of emotional and spiritual bondage, places where we were in rebellion or we were disciplined for our rebellion, and we tend to hold on to them because they're places of active resistance against the Lord, and we don't want to trust what the Lord's going to take us to what the next place is going to be. We, we want to find comfort in the discontentment of our past, and we keep clinging to it. Listen, you've got to be free from that bondage. Maybe that's you this morning. Maybe you're still in bondage. Maybe you've never trusted Christ as your Savior. And I want to tell you this morning, God can free you from the bondage of your past. You say, you have no idea what my past is like. You know what? I don't care because God is sufficient to erase it all. God is sufficient to, to lead you out of the bondage and the pain that you're in and to change your life forever. And he will permanently cleanse you if you trust in him. And believers, we have been transformed like that. And the mind of a believer is renewed and we've been freed from sin. So not one of us should ever live in bondage to sin. And not one of us should ever look back at our old life and go, that was so awesome because it wasn't. Our old life led us to hell. Our new life secures us in heaven. So our first principle this morning, I gotta remember it because I've talked too much. Our first principle is selfishness always distorts truth. Second principle, remembering the Lord's mercy and provision restores our perspective. Let me go quickly here. Remembering the Lord's mercy and provision restores our perspective. When the Lord brings them out of slavery in Exodus 13, you can look at it later. He says, remember this day when you came out of Egypt by the powerful hand of the Lord. He makes no bones about it. He says, you're getting out of Egypt because of me. Don't forget that. But they forgot, and the forgetting wasn't accidental. It wasn't because they were bothered that they were walking through the wilderness. It was intentional. Sin is always intentional. There's never one sin that you and I commit that we don't do intentionally. And Nehemiah 9 says they didn't listen to the Lord and didn't remember his wondrous works. They became stubborn and wanted to get a new leader to return to slavery in Egypt. It is amazing how quickly they could turn 
from God's amazing, miraculous work to save them to essentially blaming God for their situation and saying, we want to go back to bondage. But that's exactly what you and I do when we've been saved from sin and then we go back and we commit sin again. That's, that's exactly us. That's saying, well, I'm grateful that God saved me and praise the Lord, I'm going to heaven and I'm so happy to be a believer. But you know what? I want some me time. I want to do what I want to do. I want to satisfy myself. I want to fulfill myself. And if it contradicts God's word, well, you know what? That's okay. God will forgive me. I think part of the problem is God is so gracious that we take it for granted. Because right after Nehemiah says that, he says, God is a God of forgiveness, gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in righteousness. And he didn't forget them, even when they made a golden calf and said it was responsible for getting them out of Egypt and committed blasphemy. He didn't forsake them and his presence didn't leave them. And he guided them and gave them his spirit to instruct them and provided their needs and gave them a kingdom with physical boundaries. It's hard to believe that our problem is that God is too kind and too gracious, but maybe that's it. Maybe we're so used to the grace of God being so wonderful that we abuse it and take it for granted because God has been so kind. So how do we offset that? Because we've got to offset that, right? I think one of the best ways to offset it is to keep a record of remembrance. That's an actual list of what God has done throughout the years to show us grace. Our salvation date, if you know it, our salvation date should be at the top of our record of remembrance. This is the day God freed me from sin forever. This is the day God claimed me as his own. This is the day God secured me as his own for, for all of eternity. Praise the Lord. That's the ultimate remembrance. And then we should literally, and I'm not kidding here, we should literally start to list all the times God's provided, God's sustained, God's protected. I need to keep a record of remembrance and list the date when I swerved around that car. My life could have changed forever. I could be dead this morning. Because that car pulled out and didn't stop. How has God blessed us? How has God pulled us through difficulty? How has God provided when we had needs? How has God given us new jobs and new relationships and new locations and, and, and new whatever? All the times God's shown his mercy to us. Do you have a record of it? Or is it kind of like, yeah, God done a couple things back. No, be specific and be thorough and then review it often. And as you review it, say, God, thank you for that. Thank you for that. I will never drive up KR again and look at that intersection the same. I will always remember and thank the Lord every time I drive that, and it's often. God, you spared our lives right then. You spared us. We should have died. You spared us. Israel lost their perspective. So God keeps saying, remember Egypt. He wanted them to review the miraculous grace that he showed them. And listen, God's grace is always miraculous, but there are times where God works in special ways. There are literal miracles. Please hear me. You know me well. There are literal miracles that God is willing and waiting to do in our lives. I'm not being weird. I'm not being mystical. Miracles did not just exist when Jesus was here. They existed before him. And guess what? God's the same God. Miracles exist now. And just because a couple people have corrupted that and tainted that by saying, God will do a miracle in your life if you send me money. 
God will do a miracle in your life if you've got this special cloth that we cut out of fabric from Joanne's, but it's blessed. And if you have that fabric, God will bless you. Or whatever, that, that those, I've never used the word before, God wants me to use it now, those hucksters, that's a great word, isn't it? Those false prophets. Oh, this is water from the Jordan River, and if you hold that while you pray, God will do a miracle. Show me that in the Bible, please. I don't see it anywhere. Can God still do miracles? You bet. He's the same God yesterday, today, tell me the last word, tomorrow. He did miracles in the Old Testament. He did miracles in the New Testament. He did miracles in Acts. And guess what? God can still do miracles. Do we trust that? Remembering the Lord's past work always gives us the right perspective. Look at spiritual principle three and we'll pray. Remembering the Lord's mercy and provision counteracts stubborn rebellion. Remembering the Lord's mercy and provision counteracts stubborn provision or rebellion, excuse me. Write down Deuteronomy 5.15. You can look at it later. In Deuteronomy 5.15, Moses is restating the Ten Commandments to the people right before they go into the Promised Land. And right in the middle of them, right as he's talking about it, he says, Remember, you were slaves in Egypt, and the Lord brought you out with his mighty hand and his outstretched arm. We sang that earlier, right? Hey, Israel, as I'm reviewing the Ten Commandments because your hearts have been wrong for 40 years, and as we're about to go into the promised land that God promised to our forefather Abraham and has led us out of Egypt and, and been with us the whole way, we're about to cross the Jordan River. We're going to go into the promised land. So let's review the law that you guys callously broke at Sinai, but, but let's review it. And right in the middle of reviewing the Ten Commandments, Moses says, stop, time out, remember something. God brought you out of Egypt by his hand, and he redeemed you. For decades, the people had seen the power of Egypt. I did a little research this week, and I was surprised to find out that the pyramids and the Sphinx, you know, that we see in Giza today, near Cairo, you know what I'm talking about? The three pyramids and the Sphinx and all that? That was built before Israel was there. So Israel knew the power of of Egypt. Egypt was the strongest nation on the face of the earth. Pharaoh considered himself God. You did not challenge or question Pharaoh at all. And they had been in slavery. They had no power, no control, no freedom. They weren't getting out. And despite all their memories of their wonderful breakfast buffets, their life was miserable. And God humbled Egypt. God sent plagues that they physically saw. God brought Egypt to its knees, and God convinced Pharaoh, the most powerful man on the earth, that he should release two million slaves who were essential to his economy and essential to his everyday life, and by the way, were his enemies. That, God, that, that Pharaoh should just release two million slaves for free and let them walk away. How did he do that? He did that because God is more powerful than any man. And Israel had seen that. And now Moses says, listen, you need to remember this. In, in Deuteronomy 15, he says, observe the Sabbath day. Remember it every week that, that what God has done. You know, that's a good principle for us. Every time we gather, this service of worship and this day that's supposed to be designed for rest should be a memorial and a remembrance and a time of praise. 
Unfortunately, the church has gotten so much into a consumer mindset that, that there's been a greater focus on what we get out of church and, and whether we like the music and whether the teaching made us feel good and wasn't too harsh and whether there were a dynamic programs for our kids and whether we were entertained and whether, whether we got everything. But, but you know what? That's not a worship service is supposed to be about. You know what a worship service is supposed to be about? It's supposed to be about the Lord. When we gather, it's not about who you see. It's not about how good the music is. It's not about whether I teach too long. It's not about whether it's cool enough or hot enough or whether the carpet's the right color. You know what we're supposed to do when we come here? We're supposed to worship the Lord Jesus Christ. That's it. I don't, it doesn't really matter if you got a lot out of the morning. It matters whether we worship the Lord. And this day is set aside to say, God, you have been so gracious to us. You've been so good to us. Thank you, Lord. Thank you for what you've done. We do that. Our perspective changes. And it humbles us and it makes us grateful. And when we're humble and grateful, it offsets pride and selfishness. Israel was always about them. Complaining, griping, remembering the wrong things, longing for their past. And maybe that's you this morning. Maybe you're, maybe you're in that and you're miserable and, and you know you're miserable and don't really want to do. Let me tell you this morning, God can change you. God changed me. He changed many people in this room. Our lives are different than they used to be. And if you aren't content and you don't have joy trying new things and pursuing new relationships and living for yourself, I want to tell you, it is a dead end. It will never, ever work. But when you turn your life to Christ, God gives you freedom you don't deserve, a forgiveness you don't deserve, and freedom from spiritual bondage, and power from his spirit, and joy that is indescribable, and provision for all your needs, and he leads you perfectly, and his presence and his help is always there. You don't have to stay in Egypt. And you don't have to long for the days of bondage. God wants to lead you to a place of blessing. What we remember, how we remember it, what we do with it, influences how we live. And when our hearts are focused on God's goodness and grace and provision, and we can regularly go down that list of remembrance and say, look at all the things God's done. Look at how God's worked. Oh, God, you've been so faithful. It makes our lives lives of praise and lives of victory.